Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. I'm recording today on the first snow day of the new season here from in Colorado Springs. Um, it's beautiful outside. Um, this week on the Righteous Remnant Podcast, I'm going to talk about something that I think is actually pretty important for most believers. I think it's important for every believer. And that's living and carrying a vision for revival in your life. And um, what I find many times is that um, most Christians have a very low vision for revival. Most believers do. And, you know, some believers have heard of revival, um, in, but it's it's not that many churches are really preaching revival teaching revival and giving a a full world view that incorporates revival. And so because of that, I just think so many Christians are missing out on something that's actually so integral and important um, in their spiritual lives, but also it's important for understanding the Bible, right? Because the Bible is filled with the history of revival. And, you know, if we're just going to boil down what revival is, um, it's really just an outpouring of the Spirit. That's the biblical language, right? The Bible talks about God pouring out His Spirit. Um, it's really pouring out grace on a people. And so it's a certain time period where God really moves powerfully. And what happens is the faith of an entire people group um, raises quite a bit. And what we see is that God accomplishes many things in history through periods of revival. And um, as I said, I think most Christians don't have a strong vision for revival. And here's some of the problem with that, okay? Without a vision for revival, I think especially, you know, for Christians living today in 21st century America, what you're under attack, okay? You're under attack by a humanist ideology that is attacking you constantly through social media, through the opinions and the you know outspoken words of the people around you. You're being influenced by a, a worldview that argues there is no God, right? There is no God. There's no gods. There's only people. And we have to create our own meaning. And there's no real right and wrong other than what we as people decide it is. And this is all part of the humanist worldview. And so... Many people, um, you know, we have to understand this is the dominant worldview in the West, okay? The humanist worldview is the dominant worldview in the West. And what happens is you're being attacked by that constantly. And for many Christians, especially, you know, if you've grown up in church or, or whatever, and you have never seen miracles yourself, you've never seen an actual miracle in your own life, or you've only seen minor miracles, right? Like maybe you prayed for somebody to get healed of their headache or something like that, and it happened. And, you know, it's a minor miracle, maybe, right? Because did was that really the power of God? Did that really happen? Did their headache really get healed, right? It's not clear. And this is the case, I think, for most Christians today. And if you've never seen miracles yourself, and... There's all these people telling you that all those miracles that people have talked about in the past were just basically made up, right? Well, then what's going to happen is your faith is going to suffer. It's going to be hard to live with great faith because you're going to be constantly battling just to hold on to a belief in God, let alone a thriving and vibrant faith in God. And um, I think this is 
this is reasonable. This is rational, right? Like this is actually what the Bible itself says, right? Paul in um, 1 Corinthians 2, I think it is, he says, you know, I came to you not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Okay, that's, uh, there's a very strong biblical argument there where Paul is basically saying, look, if I had just come to you and made a lot of rational and logical arguments for God, then what would happen is your faith would be, would be built on an, an unstable foundation, right? Why? Because if someone can convince you that God is real or that G- you should worship Jesus, right? Well, then other people can come and convince you with wise and persuasive words not to do that because all you have are the words and the logical arguments of people. Okay, And Paul is saying that that is an unstable foundation for your faith. He says, that's why I came to you with a demonstration of power so that your faith would be built upon that understanding. Okay, And um, you know, this is something that I think is, is very difficult for cessationists today. And by cessationists, I mean Christians who teach and believe that you know, the, the sign gifts, that signs and wonders and miracles are really not for today, that they were for the early church. They were, God just gave grace for that for a short period of time, just for the establishment of scripture. And we don't have those things anymore, nor do we need those things anymore. I think that's a very problematic position because of passages like this. There's obviously a lot of other passages that talk about this. Um, but no, I think the scriptural argument makes pretty clear you have to experience miracles. It's very important to experience miracles, okay? Um, And if you don't have a paradigm for why haven't I seen miracles then, then what happens is it's it's very difficult to hold on to your faith, all right? It's very difficult to hold on to your faith. And um, to be clear, I think every Christian should seek after miracles, should seek to have miracles in their own lives, should seek to experience miracles, and then should seek to do miracles. I think that's all part of the biblical prescription, right? That the Bible is prescribing all of those things, okay? And to be clear, I am not saying that you should try and conjure up the miraculous where there is no miraculous, (laughs) okay? Like, I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't like it when, you know, I'm getting prayed for somebody and they're trying to push me down, right, to experience the power of God. That, (laughs) that's fake, all right, I don't think that's healthy. And if we're if we can be honest, that does go on. That type of thing does go on. Fakery does go on in the church. Okay? And I don't like it. I don't think that's healthy. Okay? We don't need to fake the power of God. We because I actually believe that we can experience the real thing. Why would I want a fake if I actually believed that I could experience the real thing and do the real thing? We want the real power of God. Okay? But to understand why it is that we don't see as many miracles today, we have to have a paradigm to explain that, okay? Otherwise, we're going to be susceptible to this narrative that's in our culture that it's all made up, right? It's made up, it was ancient peoples, and they just, you know, they saw the sun rising, they're like, it's a god, (laughs) right? It's like, (laughs) the sun is rising, it's a god, let's worship it, right? They were just primitive, ignorant people, and that's why they believed in all of this spiritual and miraculous stuff, okay? I don't believe that, 
but that is the prevailing narrative in our culture. So you have to have a worldview that understands why we don't see as many miracles today. And it's, it's actually a fairly simple one, okay? And it's that God moves according to faith, that faith is the thing that provokes God or that motivates God to do the miraculous, okay? Like, it's a very simple principle, and that principle is well attested to in Scripture, right? You're going to see Jesus many times challenge people's faith, right? If they have faith, then he'll do miracles, right? But if he doesn't, if they don't have faith, then he won't do miracles, right? You're going to see they, they, you know, people come to him and they ask him for a sign, and he says, no, I'm not giving you guys a sign because God is not moved by skepticism. <laughs> He's not moved by cynicism. He doesn't feel obligated to prove himself to anyone. And I think that's the difference here because many people today in our humanist culture are like, well, if God's real, why doesn't he just show himself? And the answer is because God doesn't feel a need to prove himself to you. And they're like, well, that's not very loving. If God loved me, and wanted me to know him, why wouldn't he show himself to me? And I think that's actually a very good argument, because what that argument does is it flies in the face of a lot of Christian thinking and teaching on this. Because a lot of Christian thinking and teaching is God loves you so much, he's in love with you, he's pursuing you, he wants you so badly. And of course, the, the natural rejoiners, well, if, he, if that's true, why doesn't he just speak to me, or show himself to me, or prove himself to me in some way? And, and this is where I think that overemphasis on the love of God really falls apart, okay? The truth is that, yes, God does love you. That is true, okay? But he's not some kind of obsessed, jealous lover, all right, who is desperate for you to affirm him and acknowledge him. That is, that is not true, okay? That is a misrepresentation of the love of God, Okay? All right, God loves us. He does not feel the obligation to prove himself to us. He does not feel like he has to reveal himself to people that have no faith in him, right? And this is where I think, you know, the humanist mind is it's very hard to understand why God would act like this because again for a humanist, hum, humanity, humans are at the center of their worldview. Why wouldn't God want to help humans? And the answer is because Humans are not so important to God. I know that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But again, I would argue that's because of so much humanist influence in our society. No, humans aren't that important to God. God doesn't feel the need to save every single human. Right? Again, some Christians are going to be really upset with that. Okay? But no, I'm, I'm trying to communicate the Bible clearly. All right? There are Bible verses that do talk about how God desires all people to be saved. That is something that he would like. But he doesn't want it so bad that he's willing to just come out and show himself to everybody. Because he could do that, right? Like God, if he wanted to, could snap his fingers, and boom, everybody could get a revelation of God, and he could appear before every single person. So clearly there's a reason why he's not doing that, even though he does want all people to know him. That seems like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's the fact that God has multiple desires in his heart at the same time, just like people do, right? Like, I want an ice cream sandwich right now. I don't want one so bad that I'm willing to go get in my car, drive to the store, pay money for it, right, and bring it back. Those two things are 
are both desires in my heart. My desire to sit here in my nice warm house, <laughs> right? And my desire to eat an ice cream sandwich. Those, those are both live desires in my heart at the same time, right? And they interact with one another. And the same thing is true with God. So he does want people to know him, but he wants people to know him only given certain, certain conditions, right? And the conditions are that he is testing people. He does not want all people to be in eternity with him. That is not the overriding desire of his heart. That's one of the desires. He, he would like that if other conditions were met, right? But the conditions that he has set is that he wants people of faith to be with him for eternity. He doesn't want people who have thrown away faith to be with him for eternity. And that's an important distinction. That's a very, very important distinction, Right, And that's really what Romans 1 is about. Romans 1 is about how humanity, how the nations, did not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held on to. Right? And they rebelled against his commands, so he gave them over to their sinful desires. He gave them over. He gave the nations over. He said, look, if you don't want to honor me, right, and... and you don't think it's valuable enough to hold on to me, I'm not going to force you to, right? That's really what Romans 1 is about, okay? It's about how humanity didn't want to hold on to God and started worshiping other gods, even though God forbade them from this, said, don't do that. And so he said, fine, and he gave humanity over. So the knowledge of God was lost from the nations, and God was content to do that, okay? Now, if you know the rest of that story, he also planned to again reintroduce himself to the nations through a chosen vessel, the Messiah, right? So through Jesus, the invitation to the nations to know God again, to be in right relationship with God, is being given out through the gospel, okay? But God's not forcing anybody. He's not forcing it. He doesn't have an agenda to make sure that everybody's saved. And Jesus is pretty explicit about this, right? He says, broad is the path that leads to destruction, okay? Why did God make that path so broad? Well, that's that's his desire. He doesn't want to make it too easy for people to know him because it's a test for the nations of the earth. That's my understanding, okay? And I think that uh, that understanding of testing, like, that's th- that's the whole idea of judgment, all right? The whole idea of judgment is that there's a test and then you're judged on your performance in the test. I think... Judgment is widely misunderstood in the body of Christ. Widely misunderstood. And because there's not an accurate understanding of judgment and God's desire for judgment and testing, right? because we don't understand that aspect of the heart of God, it's very difficult to understand a lot of how the scriptures fit together. Okay, So this is kind of a tangent you know, getting off, but we're, we have to address this. You know, And I bring up judgment a lot because again, I find that it is such a um, a stumbling block for people. It's something that really gets in the way of their understanding of how God works and how and how the Bible fits together. You can't throw out judgment. If you throw out judgment, um, <clears throat> it, it it's going to make the Bible nonsensical. It's going to make it totally illogical. And unfortunately, that is the situation um, that I think many Christians live in. Okay, but here's here's the basic idea. God desires to test people because he's looking for faith. He's looking for faith. Faith is is that most precious ingredient that God 
values, and he reveals himself, and he, he acts upon faith. Faith moves his heart, okay? So the more we act in with faith, that moves God's heart, and we see things like miracles and things like that. But there's also this dynamic of testing, and they exist both at the same time. And the reason why I have to bring this up if we're going to talk about revival is because revival means that God is going to reveal himself much more clearly to many people, but that in itself is part of a test. Because what you're going to see consistently throughout Scripture is that when God reveals himself to a people and then they do not repent, they do not react rightly to that revelation of God, well then... He punishes in a greater way. That's consistent throughout the scriptures, right? God reveals himself to the nation of Israel shortly after they start worshiping a golden calf. What does he do? And what does he do? He says, Moses, get away from them. I'm going to destroy all of them, <laughs> right? I'm going to kill all of them, right? Like, that's appropriate from God's perspective. I literally just revealed myself to you all, and you lose faith that quickly? Jesus and, it, it, you know, sometimes we think, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament or something like that. No, no, no. That's ex- It's similar. Jesus' heart was also similar. He went around performing miracles, doing signs and wonders. And then what did he do afterwards? He condemned most of the cities that he performed miracles in because they did not respond rightly to those miracles. Right? They had the revelation of God, but then they did not repent when he told them to repent. And so he condemned those cities, all right? That is how it works. God wants to bring revelation of, of himself to people groups, and he responds to faith. When people invite him and ask him and say, I want you to reveal yourself. But we also have to understand that God revealing himself means that the, that, that nation is now going to be tested because the, we're all responsible according to our revelation, all right? And that's a principle that every human naturally lives by, right? We don't expect our babies to know better, right? Like, if my baby, you know, takes a poop on the floor and smears it around, I don't treat my baby like I would an adult who did the same thing. If an adult did that, I would kick them out of my house, right? (laughs) Like, there'd be a severe reaction because you should know better. But if it's a baby who's doing it, I, I understand the baby doesn't know better, right? That's how all of us actually live. And that's how God expects us for us too. So if we don't know better, then he's much more prone to give us mercy and grace for the ways that we don't know, right? If we don't know we're committing some great evil, then he tends to be gracious about it. Now, that being said, there's still, we still reap what we sow. So it's better to know better, right? That's it. That is better. But all of this comes into play when we're talking about revival. Why doesn't God just show up and do miracles and do all this kind of stuff? Because he knows if he pours out miracles on a hardened people, they're not going to react correctly, and then he's going to need to judge and punish. Right? That's that's the biblical formula. That's how it works biblically. So a lot of Christians are like, yeah, why doesn't God just show up and do something? Because if, if God shows up and does something, then we become responsible to, the, to that clear revelation of God, all right, from God's perspective. And that's why, in God's mercy, he always sends a movement to prepare people when he wants to move, all right? And you're going to see that consistently throughout Scripture, right? Before Jesus comes, who comes first? John the Baptist, to prepare the way. And John the Baptist preaches what? A message of holiness and repentance. 
holiness and repentance, because God wants to convict people. And the, the analogy that shows up in Scripture all the time is this idea of plowing the soil. So the idea is the soil is really hard, and God wants to scatter seeds so that plants will grow and bear fruit. But the problem is if the ground's really hard, he can sow all the seeds and there's going to be no fruit. So what does he have to do? He has to plow the ground first. He plows the ground with a holiness movement, a movement of repentance and holiness. And you're going to see throughout revival history that great moves of God are usually preceded. Uh, it's probably always preceded. I just don't have enough historical knowledge to know if it's always you know, historically but moves of God are preceded, generally speaking, by movements of prayer, of humility, of holiness, right? You're going to see that fairly consistently before outpourings of power, all right? And um, then when there's an outpouring of power, that's the revival, okay? Um, the way that a people group responds to the revival will determine if they're blessed. If they respond rightly to revival, they're greatly blessed. And if they respond wrongly to a revival, then they're punished even more. Okay? All of this is very important to understand as Christians. we got to understand all this. Okay? Because question, why is it that we have just gone through probably the greatest backsliding of faith in our nation's history? All right? Two generations ago, if we're talking about our grandparents' generation, a very high percentage of Americans were Christian. Not just nominally Christian. Although, of course... In any given situation like that, many people are going to be nominally Christian. But the point is there was a much higher level of faith than if we look today, the, the, the faith of Americans on general is much lower. All right? How has this happened? Have we gone through such a great backsliding? All right? And um, I can give you a lot of reasons for that. All right? I, well, a lot of guesses. Okay? Um, I think that what we saw is we did see outpourings of the Spirit many times in the 20th century. Okay, we saw the Pentecostal revival in the early 1900s. That's the Azusa Street revival. All right, that movement, the Pentecostal revival, is the the fastest growing, most powerful religious movement in the history of the world. Okay, in 1900, there were like a handful of what we would call Pentecostals, very f relatively few on the earth. Okay, today, something like a quarter of Christians identify as Pentecostal or charismatic. All right, that that's like 250 million, something like that. So we went from, you know, a handful to 250 million in a little over 100 years, something like that. That's the fastest growing religious movement in the history of the world. All right? For us, it's hard for us to think, like, do you feel like you just went through in, in recent history the, the fastest growing religious movement in the history of the world? Probably not. Why? Because most of that was outside of America. Most of that was outside of America. Okay, the Pentecostal movement hit Latin America really hard. It hit huge portions of Asia really hard. And of course, it did hit places in America, but most of the American church rejected Pentecostalism, right? Most of the American church was like, that is like a demonic movement. And like, you know, they, they rejected it, all right? And so, by the way, what happened to all of those, you know, denominations that rejected Pentecostalism? Well, for the most part, they've been dying for 100 years, okay? Now, I'm speaking in, in broad terms, so of course, some, some elements have not died, but if we're just looking at general trends, yeah, like the only, you know, the, the, the segment of the church that's growing in America is the charismatic segment of it, 
all right? And the non-charismatic segment of it is, is dying, okay? And again, I'm just speaking in, in broad, really general terms here, okay? And um, I, so again, this is how did we respond to the outpouring that God gave? All right, and that's that's just one. That's just the Pentecostal movement. But we've had you know multiple waves of Pentecostalism. And if you're familiar with the history of Pentecostalism, there's that first wave, which is in the early 1900s. Then you have the second wave of Pentecostalism, and that's really where um, the gifts started to move on every segment of the church. And you started to see charismatic Catholics, charismatic you know Episcopalians, charismatic Lutherans, pockets of outpourings in every segment of the church started to happen. All right. And then you have the third wave of the charismatic movement, which is, you know, usually people think of the vineyard movement in the, you know, in the late 80s, the 90s. There's this movement amongst vineyard churches it's called the latter reign or the third wave charismatic movement. And, you know, I think it's okay to see movements like you know, today, like Bethel and, and movements like that as being part of that movement. Because, you know, guys like Bill Johnson, who's the leader of Bethel, you know, he really got an impartation from... A, a vineyard church in the 90s, right? There was, you know, he was encountered at um, that Toronto Airport Fellowship, I believe, right? Um, man, I can't remember the name of that leader off the top of my head. But yeah, him and Heidi Baker, they really received impartations of faith there, and they've been stewarding that, right, um, you know, since. So this is, it's all an offshoot of that. And all that I'm trying to give here, I'm not trying to claim that those you know, waves of Pentecostal were, were full-blown outpourings of the Spirit. I think there were there were minor outpourings of the Spirit. Okay, but my point is, like, if you're part of these movements, I would bet that you don't feel like God is dead or that Christianity is dying. I would bet you don't feel like that. Why? Because those have been the pockets of outpouring, and if you're connected to those movements, then you feel like you have a sense of how God has been moving in recent times, how he's moving abroad in great ways, right? And and you're expectant that he's going to continue to move in outpourings. If you're divorced from those movements, if, if you're like, what's the vineyard movement, right? Oh, I heard about those guys. They weren't they weird Christians? <laughs> if you're like, you know, what's Pentecostalism, right? If, you, if you're not familiar, like, what, what are Pentecostals? What are charismatics, right? Then, yeah, you're probably like, yeah, it just doesn't seem like God does miracles anymore, doesn't seem like God really does anything anymore, <laughs> right? Why? Because you missed his outpourings, right? You're not part of a heritage of faith that has received those outpourings, right? And that's what you're going to see over and over again in the history of the church, okay? Denominations are really husks of moves of God. I don't know. That, all right, that's a, that's, a, that's a word with a negative connotation, but accurate in many cases, okay? I don't mean to say they're all husks. Okay, but they're the remnants. They're the they're the you know these these denominations were built during moves of God to champion the truths of the outpouring, um, and you know what happens over time is they calcify right and they get corrupted by religiousness and dead tradition. Okay, and God rejuvenates them by if they embrace current moves of the Spirit that look different, but it's very difficult for denominations to do that. Very difficult because the nature of, you know, people is we tend to um, forget what God did and we only remember in terms of tradition. And this is why, you know, this is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus, right? The Pharisee movement of the first, you know, 
by the time Jesus comes around the first century, the Pharisee movement, um, by the way, is the best of the movements. It's better. They're better than the Sadducees. They're better, you know, than the Zealots. They're better than these other groups. But it still becomes so infused with dead religion and dead adherence and loyalty to traditions of the movement that it rejects the move of God in their generation. Most of them reject it. Okay. Now, to be clear, the Bible also talks about how many Pharisees came to faith in the early church. All right. Many Pharisees came to faith. And that's what you're going to see throughout, like throughout history. What happens is that the, the faithful, those who are, have a, a relatively vibrant faith in a movement, okay, what happens is when there's a new move of, when there's a fresh move of God, many of them go to that fresh move of God and they leave their old religious husk behind. Okay. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on these religious husks, okay? Because there, there are still, there's still real faith in a lot of those places. But anybody who's been frustrated by a dead church, right, or a dead denomination or dead anything, knows what I'm talking about here, right? Like what happens is when you build these movements and they get money and they get organization, what happens is you get this influx of people that, um, you know, really just want to grow in power and wealth and influence according to the standards of that organization and they corrupt the movement, right? They corrupt the movement because they're just playing politics and they're just after influence and money and, and that kind of garbage stuff. And the people who want the real thing really want God. Oftentimes those people are in a war with these, you know, these religious politician people, right? Who are just want the money and the influence primarily, Right. And what happens is when there's a fresh move of God, the people with real faith, they're like, we need to do that. We need to jump on this. We need to go to this. And the people who are like, no, 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 get out. Right? And and there's these wars and splits and all this kind of stuff happens over these types of dynamics. Okay. I hope that makes sense. And I, I'm really not trying to vilify it. Make it, I, you know, if I, I, I could understand if people listen to that entire spiel and be like, wow, Dennis thinks that all these denominations are dead, you know, terrible things. I don't think they're wholly dead, but I think many of them are largely dead. Okay. I think many of them are largely dead. Not all of them. Okay. And all and, and all to most have very good believers in the midst of them at, at times, you know, um, it, it's complex. All right. It's complex. I'm just trying to give us a paradigm to understand how this works. All right. And what we should press on towards is God, bring a move of God in our generation through me. And that's because God is constantly working. God is constantly working. He's always at work. The issue is not, is God working today? The issue is, where is God working today? All right, this is, if, if this is the only thing you hear out of this entire, th- if this entire podcast episode, all right, it's not about if God is working today, it's where is God working today? And that's a big, big question that all of us need to be very concerned with. Why? Because even in Jesus' generation, right, he 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 condemns the cities because he says, you missed your time of visitation. You didn't understand. Like, all of us as Christians today, we'd be like, man, if we could live back when Jesus walked in the earth, of course we would follow Jesus. Of course we would be his disciples. But the truth is, no, you probably wouldn't be. You'd probably be a random Israelite if you were living during that time, you'd be like, did you hear about that Jesus guy? And be like, oh yeah, I heard some things about it. I heard like, you know, 
I heard, you know, he's he's healing people. I heard, but then I also heard he's kind of a heretic, right? I also heard he says crazy things, right? And then you'd probably be one of the people that maybe you'd go to a Jesus event, right? And you see like, oh my goodness, it was crazy because he, dude, he multiplied food. I saw it. He multiplied food. But then he told us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't hang with that after that. That was crazy, man. <laughs> That'd probably be you, <laughs> right? If we're going to have humility on this, right? That would probably be me, okay? In humility, it's very difficult to discern the move of God in our own time. Very hard, right? This is very difficult because God is holy. The whole idea of him being holy is he's not like you. He's mysterious. His ways are higher than our ways. So it's very difficult to recognize God when he's actually moving because we get offended by much of the stuff that he does. This is the human condition. And and, and this is my problem because many Christians don't understand this. And we're just in arrogance thinking that, oh yeah, God just doesn't move like he did before. Or maybe God's not even real or all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, he's moving and he's real. It's just you're not in the movement. (laughs) Right? Like, you're not part of it. And and I want to say this in humility. Right? I'm, I'm not trying to accuse everybody of missing it. I'm just trying to say for the average Christian today, they are largely missing what God is doing. The average Christian today is largely missing what God is doing because it's very hard. It's hard to be part of what God is doing. It is. You have to give up a lot to be part of what God's doing. And this is why, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and so I tell people, hey, you've got to surrender everything to God. And you know what happens for the average Christian? They go, yeah, I, yeah, I do have to surrender everything. And then they don't do it. <laughs> right? Because it's hard. It's hard. But the whole point is if you don't get faith, then you can't hear God's voice when he's moving in the earth. And this is the problem for many believers is they're growing up in churches and it's not that they have zero faith, but the average Christian in American church has very little faith. And they don't realize they're missing the move of God in their generation. They're missing out on what God is doing. And, and they could be part of it, right? If you were the average Israelite living in, in Israel when Jesus was alive, you could have been part of his movement. You could have, right? You could have made the decision. Mom, Dad, I love you guys, but the Messiah is here and I must leave everything to follow him, right? Even if Jesus didn't pick you amongst the 12, Right? You could have gone to every single one of the events. You could have followed him around everywhere. You could have been that annoying kid, right? That's like, you know, like Jesus, you know, they're going around praying and, and, and telling, you know, in Jesus' name, but they're not with us. Right? That's what the disciples said about people. They were there, there was they were healing people in Jesus' name. And the disciples were like, wait a second, you guys aren't disciples. Right? That could have been you. You could have been one of those guys, right? following Jesus around, trying to do the things they did, even though you're not one of the 12. And what did Jesus say? Don't stop them, right? Don't stop them. Anyone who's not against us is for us, right? That could have been you. But my point is, that could be you today. That could be you today. Oh, if you could discern what God is doing in the earth and then give everything to go after the kingdom of God. All of us have that opportunity today to leave everything behind and to run hard after the kingdom of God. 
but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to discern what is from God and what's not from God. It's very difficult to do these things. That's why as a pastor, when I say when I say to young children, you know, young kids and college students and young adults, I say, hey, you have to study scripture. <laughs> right? Because it's only the scriptures are the great, you know, hint that God has given us on how to follow him and how to discern him. But it's so hard because there's a lot of people that do study scripture and they come to wrong conclusions. It's hard. There's a lot of people that study scripture and they don't understand. They go like, Yeah, this is too this is too boring. Right? They don't really press in. I, I fully understand that. Why? Because I wrestled with the scriptures my entire adult life, right? I've wrestled with them since I was in high school. And I just remember as a high school student wrestling with the scriptures and just having no answers and be like, I don't understand anything in this book. I just have 10 million questions. I literally filled up journals with just questions of God. How can this be true? Is this true? It doesn't make sense. Just question after question of, God, I don't understand the Bible. I don't get it. What is going on here, right? But I wrestled through. I I sincerely wrestled through, and I sought after understanding, okay? And I'm saying every believer has to do that if they want to follow God in their generation. Because I promise you, God is at work in this generation. I promise you. He's working in many different places around the earth. But if, if you're going to be part of it, you have to be willing to give up every lesser thing to follow him. That's what Jesus means when he says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That means you can't say, God, no, I have a plan to be a banker. I have a plan to be a, a, a lawyer. I have a plan to do this. And that's the most important thing in my life. And as long as you don't call me to do anything that's, that's against that, no, then you can't be, can't, you can't be Jesus' disciple. I have to make this clear because so many people are teaching, oh yeah, if you just go up to this altar call, you're a disciple. No, you're not. No, you are not. You are not a disciple of Jesus unless you give up everything to follow him. Okay? This is, one I, I think, one of the great deceptions in the church. No, you are not a disciple. I think you can be a believer and not be a disciple. I think it's possible. I think you can get eternal life and not be a disciple. I think that's possible. I think the vast majority of Christians today who have genuine faith, I'm not talking about fake Christian, I'm talking about real Christians. The vast majority of real Christians are not disciples. They're believers. But I think there's a difference between a disciple and a believer. Okay? A disciple is one who has given up everything to follow after. That's very difficult. I hope that I'm a disciple. I'm not confident that I'm a disciple in God from God's perspective. I hope I am. All right? I think it's difficult to be a disciple of Christ. I think it's very difficult. It's easy to give up. It's easy to start to put your hand to the plow and then turn back. It's easy to do that. It's very difficult in my opinion, okay? So I don't mean to, my heart is not to discourage. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I might have just discouraged anybody listening to this. I don't want to discourage you. All, but I want to give you an accurate vision, an accurate vision. Because if we want to be part of what God's doing in our generation, we have to have some humility about this. It's not easy to be part of that. It's a privileged position, right? I love that song by um, Corey Asbury. I think it's Corey Asbury, right? When, he, when he's saying, Lord, you know, all is for your glory. And then he says, catch me up in your story, right? Catch me up in your story all my life for your glory, right? That is the heart of a disciple. Lord, catch me up in your story, Meaning God is out there writing a story in the nations today. God is is up to something. He's developing a plan through certain people. And if we're if we're humble, it's probably not through us. 
We might, we might be part of it, but we're a part of it according to our faith. So we might have a very, very small role in what God's doing today. But if we seek after him with wholehearted devotion and we grow in our maturity, then we can steward a greater role in the plan that God is unfolding in the earth today. And that's, I don't know about you, that's my dream. My dream is to be greatly fruitful for the Lord's purposes. But in humility, I have to understand, I have to, I have to have humility that it's very difficult. It's very hard, especially for us in the West, because we're so rich. The Bible always tells us that being rich is such an impediment to faith. It's such a, a hindrance to following God wholeheartedly. And in the West, we got to have some humility that our faith is relatively low. Generally speaking, our faith is relatively low. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm not trying, I'm really not trying to discourage people. I'm trying to give us a healthy understanding of how these things work, biblically speaking and practically speaking. Okay. And all of this comes back to God is at work in the nations. He is planning to pour out his spirit in different places, and he is pouring out his spirit in other places. Okay. There are places in the world today where the gospel is moving with great power and rapidity. Okay. Where miracle signs and wonders are happening all the time. Okay, there are places in the world where that is happening today. Okay? Most of those places are not in the West. It's not in the West. Okay? It's villages in Latin America. Okay? It's villages in India and Asia. All right? The gospel is moving forward with power. Right? That's why like, you know, I I've heard so many people over the years say, "God, I'll follow you. I just don't make me be a missionary." Please don't make me be a missionary. I'm like, why would you disqualify yourself from wanting to go, like, perhaps to where where the Spirit wants to move? <laughs> you know, like, come on, like, that's you. You don't realize what you're asking when you say stuff like that, right? You're saying you're saying, God, don't let me have the greatest rewards. God, don't let me be the most central person in your plan. You know, and I, I don't know. Maybe that maybe people do know that's what they're asking. But the point is, it's much better to go, God. No, give me the faith to go wherever you want me to go and let me be used by you in a great way, however you want to use me, Lord. All right? Because God's plan is moving all over the earth and he's planning to move in many other parts of the earth. All right? So if we're here in America, I don't currently see uh, like a full-blown revival anywhere in America. I mean, there might be. You know, I'm, I don't know. There's pockets. You know, maybe some little town in Mississippi is in full-blown revival right now. I just don't know anything about it. Very possible. Okay? But the point is, God does want to bring, I think, a great move of God um, in America again. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about on on the level of the revivals of the past, of the first and second great awakenings, right? And it is it is such a tragedy today that we do not educate all Americans in the full history of the first and great and second great awakenings because they are absolutely integral to the story of America. Okay, they're not side things. Like today, if you go, if you take history classes, you probably get like maybe one day you'll get a mini lecture on the revival, and it'll basically, in many cases, be like, oh yeah, all these people went crazy with religious fervor for a reason. They're like yeah, it's part of history, so I guess we got to know it. And it's like, man, what a dishonoring! That is exactly what Romans one is about. Okay, that's exactly about how the nations did not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held on to. Right? Because the first and second great awakenings are not little side stories in America's history. They're absolutely central to the history of America and the, America's impact on the rest of the world. Completely central. Right? The first great awakening. All men are created equal. We print it on our money, but we don't, like, 
today, the first great awakening is generally taught as a tax revolt. You know, it's like all these American colonists are like pissed off that the King of England is taking their taxes and Parliament taking their taxes and taxation without representation. And that's the whole story of why we revolted. And it's like, come on. That was part of it, but it was a minor part of the revolution. It was a minor part of the revolution. All right. And th what a tragedy that our young people don't know this. What a tragedy. What a dishonor to the Lord that we have failed to pass down what he has done. The blessings that he gave us that we still reap from today. What a tragedy that we have failed to pass this knowledge to our children. No, it was, it was, it was the, the dream of God birthed through the first great awakening. All men are created equal. All men are created equal that you must be born again. These were two of the great messages of the first great awakening. The, the second message there, that you must be born again, that was a rebuke to the church to bring new life to the church because so much of the church had fallen into dead religion. And they believed that if you're just baptized at a young age that you were saved. And that's it. And, and, and ministers like Jonathan Edwards said, no, you must be born again. It doesn't matter if you were baptized. You must have an encounter with the living God where you repent in true repentance for your sins and are truly saved by him. This was a rebuke to the church, and it, it caused a revolution in the church. It brought many, many churches to new life again. All right? And then the message of all men are created equal. This, this was the message that God was releasing over the earth to end feudalism. Feudalism was a, a structure, a, a civil, civiliz, civilizational structure all over the earth. It wasn't just in Europe. It was all over the earth. Feudal Japan, right? Feudal Korea. Feudal, everything was feudalism. The, the belief in kings and nobles and peasants and that people were born to different lots in life. And then comes this revelation that in Christ, all men are equal. We are one in Christ. And men like George Whitfield spoke to English coal miners and said, you know, if any man is in Christ, he is greater than the king of England, right? If you're in Christ, you're greater. And this is such a liberating message. And so the early colonists were so impacted. George Whitfield was the great celebrity of early American colonial life. 80% of colonists heard George Whitfield speak in person. It was so impacted by this message that they demanded a new government, a new way of life, that a new government that was by the people, for the people, right? Where every man was, was restrained by the law equally. There was no different law for nobles than for, than for peasants. We're all equals before the law, right? And why? Because our rights come from God. They don't come from a king or from a noble. My rights come to me from God. And the government, no king and no noble has the right to infringe upon my God-given rights. Right? This was the message that sparked constitutional republics all around the world. The American experiment was the great experiment, but it was enabled by real faith because it was a move of God. That's why it prospered. The French tried to replicate the American Revolution without the God part, and it failed miserably. It ended up in greater totalitarian control and government. But the move of God through the early American colonists spawned a movement of liberty and freedom all around the world. This was a move of God. And this is the problem that we don't know this. Our young people don't know this. The Second Great Awakening was the movement that ended slavery in America. And it ended it all around the world because Americans and Europeans who had the same revelation, right, were compelled 
by conviction to forcibly end the slave trade all around the world. This was one of the great fruits of the Second Great Awakening. Don't tell me that revivals have not had impact in history. Don't tell me it was a bunch of crazy religious people. Give me a break. I hate that it's taught like that. It's such a betrayal. It's such a betrayal of what God did. And it's a tragedy that even Christian young people growing up today don't know their own heritage. This is the heritage of the faithful that we've been used by God throughout the generations to bring freedom and prosperity and hope to set free the captives all throughout history. That it was the move of God that brought movement for women's rights. It was the move of God that ended slavery. It was the move of God that cared for widows and orphans, right? That changed entire cultures and nations. It was the move of God that did all these things. And in our generation, they want to vilify all of it and say it was Western imperialism and colonialism. It's like, no, no dummy. Sorry, I don't mean to call anybody in particular dummy, but no dummy. All right. All peoples are vicious and malevolent. You give any people group power over another people group, you know what they do? They tend to conquer them and abuse them and oppress them. That is the human condition. But through God, God used Christians to bring freedom and prosperity all over the world. Do you understand? We've been living through the greatest economic miracle in the history of the world. 50% of global extreme global poverty, or excuse me, 80% of extreme global poverty has been eliminated in the past 50 years. It's not because it's it's not because of you know all of these social engineering programs and the war on poverty and all this kind of government crap. That's not what's done it. It's because righteous nations have had power and have enabled the rest of the world right to be able to thrive and prosper. What would happen if American power was destroyed in the world? World war would happen. Okay, what would happen if China was the dominant world power? A lot of oppression would happen. Okay, I'm not trying to say that America is the righteous nation, Chinese is the unrighteous nation. I am saying that in our nation's history, America has been more righteous than China, generally speaking. But that might flip, okay, because the Spirit of God has been moving powerfully in China. And Americans have been rejecting the moves of God. Most Americans have been rejecting the moves of God. So we don't know. That might flip in time. It's not about white people being superior or more righteous. It's about those who have a more devout faith in the Lord, who truly obey his commands. And the nation is exalted by its righteousness. God will exalt righteous nations, righteous people. And he will, and he will destroy and humble arrogant nations. That forget about him. Okay, all of this is part of revival. Why we have to have a paradigm of revival? Why it's so important? Because we must have a revival in America to reinvigorate the faith of the nation, to remember what God has done, right? So that we don't look at ourselves and say, We built all these things, we did all of this, right? It was all us. No, it was the Lord who blessed us and gave us grace because we put our faith in him. All right, that's how these things work. All right, I'm just going to close you know, with this. How do we get more vision for revival? You have to get impartation for it. Okay, so me sharing, that's a, a kind of impartation. I hope that you receive some type of impartation of faith for revival you know, from this podcast episode. But there's so many great leaders. All right, listen to people like Bill Johnson, people like Lou Engel. Okay, 
Listen to Mario Murillo. Listen to these leaders that speak about revival, that impart vision and faith to go after revival. Okay? That would be my number one um, encouragement is get impartation of faith. Like, look, if you're at a church or a ministry where you have a leader that has strong vision for revival, let me tell you, it's an incredible blessing because they're constantly imparting vision for it to you. You know, once a week, twice a week, maybe three times a week, they're imparting vision, okay? But if you're not at a church like that, the leaders of your church do not have vision for revival. They don't understand it. They don't have a deep burning for it. Then you've got to go outside to get it. Right? And to be clear, I think every every Christian should be going outside of their own ministries to get impartations of faith for where their ministries are lacking because there is no perfect ministry out there. They don't exist. Okay? No perfect ministry. So you should that's what it means for the body of Christ to be one body. That we need other parts of the body. And this is the arrogance of the church and and why we're so divided when we discourage people from getting teaching outside. I understand it can become divisive if somebody's teaching, you know, things in a in a in a Un, in a dishonoring way towards the leaders at your church, then that could lead you to despise the leaders at your church. I get that. That's that's not healthy. Don't do that. Okay. Why honor one? We need to honor many leaders in the body. Every leader in the body has both strengths and weaknesses, and we should honor every leader for the strengths that they do have, and we should forgive and dismiss the weaknesses that they do have because every leader also has weaknesses, okay? But it's important that we draw from a variety of leaders in the body, okay? If you have no vision for evangelism. You should you should listen to some evangelist online. Go find Todd White. Listen to his heart. Go listen to old Billy Graham sermons. Right? There's there's other great evangelists out there. I, I, I'm drawing a blank on others off the top of my head. Right? But listen to other other ministers. It's important. It gives you a balanced perspective. Okay. All right. <clears throat> and also, I would encourage you read books on revival to get understanding. Right, it's not enough just to get vision. You once you get vision and you're hungry. I want to know more about revival. Then you need to get teaching. Okay, what uh, teaching builds a, a a holder for vision. All right. So if you just if you just listen to Lou Engel one time and you get vision for revival. Oh, we need revival. We need revival. But you never get teaching on it. Then what happens is there's no container to hold that vision. And so the vision leaks out because you don't have a worldview, a systematic way of understanding how revival works. You need both. The problem is if you try and get teaching without vision, you you don't want it, right? This this is the problem for me, right? Because I like to teach people, but the problem is people don't have vision for the things that I want to teach. So they go like, oh, like, why why do you talk about revival so much? You know, like, oh, why are you talking about theology? Like, what Man, so boring. Or why are you talking about, you know, Marxism? Or you know, th- what that means is they don't have vision. They don't know understand why it's important. You have to get vision first. Once you get vision, then you can try. You want to learn? Teach me, teach me, teach me. And then you get lots of teaching, and the teaching builds a support structure so that you can hold on to the vision longer. All right. You need both of those things. All right. So. If you, if you go on YouTube or whatever and you listen to leaders that have vision for revival, that's great. Get that vision and then go get teaching, right? Rick Joyner is a phenomenal teacher on a lot of this type of stuff, right? Get teaching from great teachers, right? Show that you can get understanding on how all of this stuff fits together well. All right, and then you can carry that vision much longer. It have it will be more enduring in your heart. Study the scriptures on all these passages, right? Burn them in your heart, right? So that it all of this stuff helps us to carry it long term. Okay, I hope that's helpful. 
And I pray, God, pour out vision for what you're doing in the nations. Pour out vision for revival and for outpouring, Lord. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.